the music part is free. It's all the other shit that you get paid for. Sitting around in a lobby of a hotel waiting for your room. Sitting in a airport waiting on your plane. Like, nobody wants to do that shit. And that's what you get paid to do. Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal Tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for the Bodines and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guests today are Ketch Secor and Corey Ounce of the Grammy Award-winning bluegrass band Old Crow Medicine Show. We're going to talk with the Old Crow guys about the time that Garrison Keillor kicked them out of his house. Which state has more rebel flags flying these days, Tennessee or Wisconsin? And why the heck they're sharing royalties for their hit song Wagon Wheel with Minnesota's best-loved songwriter, no, not Paul Westerberg, Bob Dylan. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not really? too much. There's well, too yeah, much perspective now. Alex, I don't think we can emphasize enough the role luck plays in success. Agreed. And often luck is just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Exactly. Like, I bet you thought you were in the right place at the right time when you happened upon my band's demo <laughs> back in 1993 and were sure you discovered the next big thing. That's true. And I thought I was at the right place at the right time when I met you, this budding Milwaukee music mogul who was going to make sure that we landed a massive record deal. Well, that was my intention. <laughs> but alas. All we ended up getting out of it was a lifelong friendship and this middling podcast. And I would trade both for fame and fortune <laughs> in a heartbeat. <laughs> Obviously. But it is true. Being at the right place at the right time, along with a healthy sprinkling of talent, I'd say, can make all the difference in the world. I mean, we can just ask our guest today, Old Crow Medicine Show, who attribute their breakthrough to a chance encounter with a music legend Outside of pharmacy, of all places. And by pharmacy, I assume you mean like a Walgreens, not some drug dealer's house. Yeah, right, Alan. Not a dispensary. That's right. Because really, because my car once broke down in front of a crack house in Chicago, and that was less the right place at the right time than the right place to meet a guy with a teardrop tattoo who had done time. <laughs> yeah. And your car broke down there? Well, it was my friend Scott's car, and of course, he said the wrong thing at the wrong time. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm very lucky to be here today. Let me just say that. <laughs> That's too much happy perspective, Alan. Let's go ahead and just get to our conversation with Old Crow Medicine Show. And speaking of show, listeners, please follow, rate, and review the TMEP show on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. It really helps encourage others to check out the series. Now, please hang out with us. We'll be right back after a short break. And now our chat with two guys from a band Bob Dylan once said was killing it. Old Crow Medicine Show's Catch Secor and Corey Younts. 
I had a Spinal Tap moment in Nashville. A buddy of mine and I who were coming down for a songwriting conference rolled into town about half an hour after a tornado had come through. And I think it basically turned East Nashville upside down. We got to our Holiday Inn downtown and the doors were actually flat on the floor of the lobby entrance. And they said, "Uh, welcome to Nashville. Please head right to the basement. (laughs) (laughs) That's so odd. Like our citywide tragedy was your travel hiccup. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not coming down on you for it. It would have been the same way if I got to Madison and the cheese factory had exploded and like a bunch of kids died and I missed sound check and I'd be like, yeah, I'm just sitting here in this town that had this tragedy, but it's not my tragedy or my town. I guess I'll go to the Oneida Casino. (laughs) (laughs) You clearly know a lot of things about Wisconsin. Tell us some stuff. And do you have a Spinal Tap moment story from the Badger State? Totally. It was at Schwano. Not Shawano or Schwarno. Anyway, it's one of those unpronounceable towns at Cecil Fest in the year 2003. (laughs) Shawano. Leave out silent W. Shawano. Not Schwano. (laughs) Shawano. This is a festival that I hope is defunct now because of the, um, the total loss of life that was bound to happen there in subsequent years. This was a kickoff. And it's the first time I realized that rednecks lived north of the Mason-Dixon line because one of the things you could do at Cecil Fest was ride on a couch being pulled by a tractor through mud. (laughs) To me, that was like a defining Wisconsin cultural moment. Oh, they're just like us up here. (laughs) That sounds like a Travis Scott concert waiting to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It used to be a fine, progressive state, and now it's... um, it's Trumpy as fuck up there. Yeah, it's I, I've seen more rebel flags in that state than mine. Really? Ooh, what's up, Wisconsin? Yeah. I haven't been there in Chill a long out, time. man. It ain't your war. In the nearly 100 years of the Grand Old Opry, only 221 acts have been made members, including Earl Scruggs, Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash. George Jones, the Everly Brothers, and Hank Williams was a member, although he was eventually kicked out for habitual drunkenness. You guys, Old Crow Medicine Show, are part of this storied institution. You were made the 201st member of the Opry. And can you tell us about your first performance there? Because I read about it, and it seems almost dreamlike. Well, Porter Wagner was there, and he was wearing purple, dressed like a Spanish onion, and they brought us out onto the stage, and we were there to support a new product called Joggin' in a Jug. Southerners already drink vinegar. They just didn't have it marketed as such. And this is pre-kombucha, y'all. Like, this is way pre-kombucha, but in a way is foreshadowing the whole kombucha revolution. Kombucha-lution? Mm. <laughs> Anyway, they brought us to town to play on the street corner in front of the Opry. And every week we would move incrementally closer to the stage, but they weren't sure they wanted us uh, until popular support. They couldn't help but put us on there. They set you up to busk outside of it? Yeah, they hired us. They basically tipped us real good to set up our tip jar and get more (laughs) tips. Isn't that kind of like having a script for improv comedy? Totally. We learned early on that a lot of the spontaneity of the music business was actually scripted. 
we learned it really quickly in bluegrass because, of course, bluegrass is crooked. We did a lot of contests, and we were often promised that we would win before we even got to the contest. And so we would count on the prize money. One time we did a gig at this community center. We played a lot around the elderly and infirmed in this band. (laughs) That was an early demographic for Old Crow. And uh, anyway, we're playing this community center, and we'd been promised that we would win the $250 grand prize at the end. And then, for some reason, we didn't. And we had made plans that we were going to take that 250 and drive to New Orleans that night. And instead, like, I think we made $25 and we just got some chicken. Who won? That, like, special needs mandolin player. Oh, man. I think we were beat out by <laughs> a tug at the heartstrings of the judges, a last minute entry. Damn them. Damn guys with training wheels on their fiddles. The guy that cuts my hair is from Boone, North Carolina. I live in Portland, Oregon now, but I asked him if he came across you guys back in those days. And he said that he actually worked at the coffee shop next to the drugstore where you guys would play and used to serve you coffee and give you shit about being a string band because he was into punk and metal and stuff like that. Guy named Will. You remember Will? Don't remember Will, but we probably would have partied with him. We were definitely more into punk music than string band music. We just happened to figure out we would play string band music because it was more lucrative than punk music. That was sort of an early on choice. But gosh, I remember busking in Portland before Old Crow when I was about 18. And I remember getting um, detained there by the authorities for busking at Pioneer Square. You couldn't busk Portland without a license. In a lot of places as a busker, you know, you had to know where you could go and where it was legal and where you could get away with it. Because a lot of places it wasn't legal. You could still make quick coin and then beat it. Like Seattle was that way. As you can imagine, Pike's Market is very scripted. And so you got to sign up to get your spot. And if you get a good spot, you can make bank. But a shitty spot at Pike's, you might as well be busking in Peoria (laughs) down by the docks. But I got pulled in by the cops for busking at Pioneer Square. And they brought me into this whole underground police system. And I know that the gutter punks and the ELFers and the Antifa. Antifa. Antifa knows what I'm talking about because they've probably been down there in the dungeons too. These were like the late 90s, the early dungeons of Portland, where it was just like security glass and a whole bunch of cameras. But yeah, I had to wait down there for about five hours before they cleared my social. I know you guys are going to be here actually back at Pioneer Square, the scene of the crime catch Yeah, in, in July. I used the name Jay Wilkinson. Okay. That's what got me through, man. Got it. And somewhere there's a file on me <laughs> for, for Jay Wilkinson. <laughs> okay. Portland police, <laughs> be forewarned. Jay Wilkinson's coming back to town. All points bulletin. I have a question about your busking episode at the Cambridge Folk Festival. Another big opportunity that you guys got. Yeah, that one's probably one of those things left over in a bio from a long time ago that press agents like continue to resuscitate, even though we would have let it died like decades ago. But thanks for asking about it. Yes, let me set the stage for you. It was the thrilling 2004 Cambridge Folk Festival to which we were not invited. And we were out on the road with Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, who are adored in the British Isles. And I I had started the tour off with a kind of a left turn by sending my two unchecked violins through the checked luggage line at LaGuardia, waving goodbye, thinking, 
man, I sure smoked a lot of weed before we got on this trip. <laughs> anyway, off they go. I get to Shannon in Dublin, and there's no fiddles. Oh, my God, I just booked a three-week European tour, and my violins have stayed in New York. What am I to do? And it was pretty stressful, all jet-lagged, walking the streets of Dublin, all dejected, down by the Liffey. But thankfully, I walked into a music store, then the proprietor there said, Oh, yeah, poor boy, they had already heard that Gillian's opener had lost his violins. Wow. And he said, I got a guy for you up at Marino. He'll take care of you. He's got two of them. He gives me two violins, and I do the whole tour with this guy's fiddles. Being the opener, you know, you're basically like a seagull following the tuna boat, just hoping for a handout. And that was the case when we got to Cambridge. We were just hoping that they let us play. So we just set up in front of a water fountain and started our shuck and jive. And, you know, they sort of couldn't turn us away after that. You know, we have a very big busking story in the history of Wisconsin music. The Violent Femmes in about 1981 were playing in front of the Oriental Theater. And James Honeyman Scott was walking by from the Pretenders. He saw them, liked them, and invited them to open for the band that night. It's that right time, right place kind of mentality that helps you see that not only are musicians entertainers, but they're also like priests. There's like a high priestess vibe in which you're attuned to a magical flow. And if you can ride the wave, man, you won't crash yet. I'm going to live by that. That's some great like surf lingo for you. <laughs> I had this experience in Nashville where I was going through town with a band from the UK called Balloon. And it was a promo tour where you're we doing weird little coffee house gigs and busking kind of things. And somebody had the idea that we should pull into the parking lot at Arnold's, which is a legendary restaurant in Nashville, a meet and three. And jump out at lunchtime. There was a lot of industry folks, <laughs> we were told, have lunch there. And it'd be a good thing to do. So we we were driving around in this crazy van, a modern Ford minivan, but had all this memorabilia on top, a flexible flyer sled, a totem pole, luggage. I mean, just all this crazy stuff. We drove cross country in that thing. So we literally just pulled up in front of Arnold's, jumped out with the instruments, and began to play, expecting to cause a stir. And... <laughs> people sort of looked around quizzically and then someone from inside Arnold's, like the manager or whatever, instead of shooing us away and said, uh, hey, come on in and play. It was a fun kind of thing and and felt really good. But catch, it wasn't like the, didn't have kind of the underground rebellious feel that you experienced at Pioneer Square in Portland. Well, I guess that's because the label thought it up. When the ideas come from the label, they tend to be label types that are listening. They, they did that a lot with us too. Oh, let's have you busk here. There were so many, oh, let's have you busk here's. I remember we busked a AAA radio convention that they weren't going to play us on that format. And you know, finally, 23 years into this band, they're finally starting to play us at the format where we busked. So maybe 14 <laughs> years ago in Louisville at that convention, it was just a really slow hand to drop that dollar into the case (laughs) (laughs) 
I want to keep going on this busking topic a bit longer because it's so crucial to the career of Old Crow Medicine Show. Can you tell us about the time you were discovered by Doc Watson and his daughter? Because that's a great story. Sure. We It was the 5th of July. We had made whiskey on the 4th. So have you all ever made corn liquor? Not intentionally. It's really a quite the process. It takes a couple of weeks. You really have to and donate <laughs> your bathroom to the cause because that's where you make it all in your in drywall buckets in your bathtub. But once we got the whiskey going and, you know, it's coming out of the thump keg and jumping around, and then there's the slag jar for the puke. Anyway, once that worm, that's what they call the coil, the worm, once the worm sends out that clear white corn liquor, that's when you know you got the poison. And we were all poisoned up. So the next morning, we were a mess. We were really hurting. Um, but we were 19, so it didn't matter that much. And we went into town to play at the place that we normally played out in front of Boone Drug. We set up our tip jar and Arthur Grimes was there because he's a great buck dancer, part of the African-American buck dancing tradition up there. Arthur would always come out and dance with us. And that would always help the crowd too. you know, music and dance together on the curb. I mean, try that at the steps of Congress. I mean, they'll <laughs> pistol whip you for days for that shit. With a hangover. <laughs> mm. So we're starting to play and the tourists are coming in from Charlotte. They're all up there to buy bird houses and flipper dingers and G-Hall Wimmy Diddles uh, and tip us. And, and this lady walks up and she's like, Ian's going to be here. Now, that's an important thing to point out there because down south, they say y'all and everybody knows it. But up in East Tennessee, West North Carolina, they say, Yuns, you ones. Or the uh, possessive plural, thians. Shans, hands, weans. <laughs> Weans love yuns. Yeah, it's for real. Weens love Yunes because Yunes flat out peak. No, please. I haven't even gotten a handle on half the new gender identifiers. I don't have the bandwidth for this, too. He identifies Sheens. <laughs> anyway, um, so we started busking, and the lady, she's like, Yunes going to be here for a while because my daddy loves this kind of music. And we didn't think much of that comment. We said, sure, maybe. She went off, and then she came back about an hour later. Thank God we didn't pack up. And she walked her dad, Doc Watson, across the street. And we knew Doc lived nearby, and you know we'd wanted to be around Doc, but he was on another side of the mountain than where we lived. You know, he was a big star. So we were sort of, at that time, we were getting around some of the old timers that were never on the radio or never made records, real amateur types. And that was great. But then Doc Watson came into our lives. And he, he listened to us. He, he had great big ears, like a satellite dish ears, you know, just getting the signal. And he drank us in with those great big ears and gave us our big gig on the spot. Booked us to play the Merle Fest the next spring. And that gig changed our lives because that's where the Grand Ole Opry saw us and uh, brought us down to Nashville that next year in the year 2000. And that's when we first met Corey. Mm-hmm. And Corey had been gallivanting around with all kinds of other bands. That yeah, were, we were busking ourselves here in Nashville with Justin Towns Earl and myself and a handful of other guys. We had a little group called the Swindlers mm. that never really went anywhere, especially when, once Old Crow Medicine Show got to town. So they stole all our thunder. We kind of stole all the thunder of anybody <laughs> that was trying to be Bastards. a re renegade old-time band. But Corey was like our biggest fan. Corey would bring a lot of people out to see us, and he had all the good bootlegs. So years later, after the lineup had changed considerably, Corey became a kind of flamekeeper of the early years of Old Crow, because we're a 23-year-old band, y'all. 
Oh, and I was thinking about this because the Spinal Tap, you know, it's sort of like Where's Nigel? Our band has had a Where's Nigel for basically <laughs> from the beginning because from the very beginning we were dropping members like flies. <laughs> And we were dropping really significant members, Nigel's even. Uh, and so our first Where's Nigel would be, what would you say? Uh, who I never met, actually. Who's the gal that went to uh, Canada with y'all? Where's Shaney? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> It'd be Where's Shaney? Where's Benny? Where's, where's Jocko? But then the big one. Where's, where's Critter? Critter? Where's Critter? Critter. Where's Critter? Was where's like, Gil? Was where's, there ever a... Was Gil been really quite It culminated in really Where's Nigel, was he? But Where's Critter came in different chapters because sometimes Critter would be in our band and other times he wouldn't. So the Where's Nigel could like follow you. Mm-hmm. Is this because you guys are horrible managers and hard to work with or is it kind of a thing? We're like the... What was it? The 82 Brewers? Nice. We've lost Bruce Suter. You know, I mean, it was a big deal when we lost Bruce and we tried to replace him. Oh, and then we lost that great catcher, Ted Simmons, too. And I don't think it was a great trade. And it took us years to recover, but we did it for the team. Who, the Cardinals? You're talking about the Cardinals, right? Suter and Simmons went to the Cards. Who'd they get for No, him? they came from the Cards. No, Bruce Suter was a brewer before he was a Cardinal, wasn't he? I don't think Bruce Suter was on the team. I think you think Don Sutton. No, Suter played for the Cards, but then he came from the Brewers. Holy shit. I mean, listen, guys, we're going to... You got to fact check this. The dream podcast, the one I want to do is musicians on Wisconsin sports team. <laughs> That's what I really want. I mean, like, I've kind of, this is just kind of like my way to get there. So you guys are, are hired yes. for that show for damn sure. Yes. Okay, let me just say 82 Brewers. It's the seventh inning. The Brewers are on their way to winning the World Series. I say to all my friends, we are going to be world champions. The next pitch is the last pitch that they <laughs> that went downhill like this, and I've been blamed ever since. Merrick, they wouldn't let me watch the Bucks last season with them because they were afraid I would call the game too early. Bad mojo, man. Yeah. yeah. You're yeah. the one that needs to be living on the West Coast. <laughs> I am. Oh, sweet. I am. I'm on Los Angeles. That's good for the whole state. That's right. So I saw you guys at Wolf Trap. It was part of a Prairie Home Companion show and loved it. It was obviously a beautiful venue. I think it was hosted by a local DJ who had a Sunday morning radio show that he called Stained Glass Bluegrass, which I always love that expression. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stained Glass Bluegrass. Bluegrass. Stained Glass Bluegrass. Any Spinal Tap moments that came out of working with Garrison Keeler? Oh, I'm writing one down right now. <laughs> oh, I was going to oh. hand it to Catch. Uh, or do you want me to pre-screen it? Because some of them aren't that appropriate. Do you remember this? That Garrison's house? <laughs> oh, this is a really good one. Go ahead. No. Okay. Yeah. okay, so we're, we did a lot of work with Prairie Home Companion, and we love a Prairie Home Companion. And Garrison Keeler, to me, is a pole star for our genre, for Nashville, Tennessee, for the Opry. His work magnifies the work that's been done in Nashville. I just, I adore him. He's a national treasure. And everybody that works on that show is amazing. Mm -hmm. And one of the most exciting things that happened to Old Crow in its first 10 years was our affiliation with the show, getting to do it 
in all kinds of places all over the country. We did the Hollywood Bowl with Garrison Keillor. We did New York City. We did. We played in Arizona with him. We all over the country were with, with him. So anyway, uh, you could go to the movies and watch a live A Prairie Home Companion broadcast of the show, just like you'd tune it in live on the radio. Now you had the visual component. It was an exciting thing. We did it at the Fitzgerald in St. Paul. After the show was over, we all went to Garrison's house, and we partied, and we played. And let me set up that party for you. If you've ever seen any Woody Allen film, it's very much like there's a lot of glasses, a lot of cardigans, a lot of <laughs> intellectuals, and then old crow with their dirty jeans and and i'm sorry i just want to interrupt that i'm glad you did because (laughs) we were pretty lubed up for this party and we took it in a a slightly untoward direction when we started jamming and like there's all white carpet like just a nightmare for a bunch of shit kicking boots like us (laughs) and we just started jamming hard and the pianist from the prairie home companion uh, he's also the band leader, so he was playing piano. Rich Dworsky. That's it. He's a fabulous player. And so we were really excited to get to play with him as well. And, you know, we're leaving stains <laughs> on the piano. And empties everywhere. Empties all everywhere. Up. And at some point, I think one of our guys wandered off and was having a conversation with somebody and wound up spilling a whole bunch of red wine on that white carpet. And... It really didn't deter us. I think we were the last ones at the party, and Garrison finally had to tell us to leave his house. We get to the door, and and the whole entourage is there, and and Garrison turns to me, and he says, That was fun. Now, get the fuck out of my house. (laughs) Take your cigarette butts. I'm making a t-shirt of that. (laughs) That was fun. Now, get the fuck out of my house. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great line. TM. Hey, listeners, just a heads up. At the end of this episode, I'm going to play one of my songs, Crackers, from my solo album, Wuthering Depths. Stick around. Let's go to the movie. What are your favorite scenes in This Is Spinal Tap? Corey, you go first. I ran this by a couple of the guys here today. I love that they're at their record release party or... And the manager says they're not going to release the record because they think the cover of it is too sexist. And Nigel doesn't get it at all. And he says, well, what's wrong with being sexy? I don't understand. (laughs) I love that they all have a herpy at that party. And we're fixing to have to host a party as well here in Nashville at our Heartland Studios. And I really want to find a good makeup artist and give us all a herpy <laughs> for the party. He sent out a group text to all the band members this morning if mm-hmm. we were cool with the herpy and yeah. <laughs> top lip or bottom lip. Yeah, maybe both. It'd be oh, cool if you could you get, get right. one that hinges like a clamshell. <laughs> herpy on top, herpy down below. Uh, anyway, that's one of my favorite. And one one of my favorites that came to mind recently, because, you know, you say this spinal tap stuff you say it out on the road because it really captures the essence of touring and being in a band that any genre yeah it doesn't have to be a hair metal band all the lines from that movie can be applied to a folk band or a rock band or a 
I was actually going to bring that up, and I think that's a great point because it does transcend genres of music, and and not only that, theater, and anyone who's yeah. performing live is going to hit on a Spinal Tap moment because obviously these industries you deal with the weirdest fucking people, mm-hmm. right? In general, in the Absolutely. weirdest circumstances with the weirdest venues. Yeah, that's something that that movie captures. I think that's really good is you know the music part is free. It's all the other shit that you get paid for sitting around in a lobby of a hotel waiting for your room, sitting in a airport waiting on your plane. Like nobody wants to do that shit. And that's what you get paid to do. Yeah. The music part is free. That's fun. So I think that movie really captures all that. Catch. Did you say what your favorite scene in Spinal Tap is? Uh, yeah, I was going to say um, that I recently thought of a Spinal Tap because I was playing alongside live action puppets. Uh, that was me and a, an old crow bandmate doing a fundraiser for the public library here in Nashville. And I've been thinking about, are you on your way down when you start working with puppets? Are puppets like a kind of signpost to decline? <laughs> Once the hard tickets start to cease, do the puppet tickets start to sell? I don't know, but I we're in a 23-year-old band, and if puppets are the harbingers of our own demise, then so be it. I say, bring on the puppets. What about when we played Big Bottoms in Cleveland? Really? Say more about that. I mean, that couldn't have been more on the nose. I thought it was going to be on the nose. I don't think it went over very well. I was against it. Right. I always figured Sex Farm would be the most old crow. And I remember when we were in Cleveland and the guys woke up that morning, because we do a new tune in every town, like we'll do... What made Milwaukee famous has made a loser out of me. Perfect. You know, we, we tend to do the local tune because the premise of Old Crow, fellas and ladies tuned in here, everybody, what Old Crow stands for is that we are your hometown band in every hometown in the world. You know, we, we might go to Norway and try and be a hometown band. And we'll talk about the fish processing plant that we all toured today. But anyway, in Cleveland, the boys woke up and they're like, we're going to do Big Bottoms. And inside, my inner dictator was like, fuck that. We're not doing Big Bottoms. That's a bad idea. (laughs) But you got to relinquish because, you know, you're on a team. So I let go and I was like, fine, let's do it. But it didn't work, did it? It didn't work. It didn't work. I thought we executed (laughs) it well. I thought we played it good. It just didn't go over very well. The crowd just didn't know it. You know, Mm. I feel like we've, we are understanding and your understanding of the film is heightened to our own individual attunement Mm -hmm. and that the rest of the masses, they're not keenly aware like we are of the value of this piece. Hence this podcast. You guys call Nashville your home, and I know several musicians over the last couple of years who have moved there, including my friend Brett Simons, who is a phenomenal bass player. Uh, he was in my band Happy List and is currently touring with the big band Chicago. In fact, Brett bought several properties in Nashville and rehabbed them and has been renting them out. And he says the city's kind of undergone a mini renaissance. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, we definitely have inherited a really healthy scene in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's interesting because Nashville did very little to cultivate that. 
Nashville has always been an industry town, is always interested in the number one, the top 10, whatever it is. It's about that commodification, whether the top 10 includes Ring of Fire or whatever the top 10 is currently, which I think has a Morgan Wallen cut, a Kane Brown cut, maybe Carly Pierce. You know, folks that you listen to them next to Alt Country or Loretta Lynn and you'd be like, wait, what? How is it that this is country music? What part of this is country music? Is the truck in the song that important? Because all there is is the truck. <laughs> that ain't my truck. I mean, that's the only thing that's right. country. Even, just like you saying right there, even the southern accents are going away now. So, Old Crow writes a lot about social justice, equality, and topics that frankly aren't often addressed by southern bands. Are those comfortable positions for you guys to take? We straddle some really divergent populations because we play traditional country music. And so sitting squarely in the middle of two increasingly polarized camps allows us to have a front row seat to the culture wars, man, and to provide important content for both sides. And we really want to sing for everybody. And the opportunity to sing for both camps now is, I think, more important than ever as country has really chosen its side. Your new record, Paint This Town, I think sits very much in that space that you just mentioned in the middle of the culture wars and is making really well-considered commentary. We always had hillbilly folks at the show like bringing their own corn whiskey and shit or like long-haired country boys. We always had that. I think that Wagon Wheel has helped to keep it kind of central because we actually had a hit. The fact that we don't necessarily sing the version that they're playing outside the monster truck it is notable, but the fact that an African-American recording artist is continues the framework of Old Crow as being accessible, you know, from the Hardy's parking lot to the place where you can get that drive-in kombucha. <laughs> Do you find it really hard to talk to both sides because one side and a specific side is so divorced from reality? Anything and everything can be politicized now. But I think that when you're asking the guy at Publix to take your groceries with you and you're chatting up the person beside you and that person doesn't look like you or you get to the car and you're like, you have those bumper stickers? Well, I have these bumper stickers. But look at us. We're both buying 2% milk. Or like I'm buying oat milk and you're buying whatever, lactate. And it turns out we are supposed to hate each other, but we're going to pull up at the same red light. And when it turns green, we're going to go. We're part of the same municipality. We might even like the same damn old crow song. You brought up Wagon Wheel, certified double platinum, unambiguous hit, signature song. I saw a catch somewhere that you referred to it as a stolen melody song, which I really love that phrase. As you went through the process of making that song legit, from a business standpoint anyway, with Bob Dylan's folks, how did that go? Were there any Spinal Tap moments in going down that road? 
Yeah, the biggest Spinal Tap moment at a wagon wheel that I can think of is that when we went to publish the song, we got a message back from Bob's longtime manager, Jeff Rosen, saying, Bob agrees to publish it 50-50 Dylan Secor, and we're good to move forward. Oh, but Bob says he didn't write the song. (laughs) And we're like, what are you talking about? Bob didn't write the song. Yeah, um, uh, he claims that it's an Arthur Crudup composition. Big boy. Big boy Crudup was the guy from Memphis who had the hit. Oh, that's all right, mama. Oh, that's all right for you. He wrote that thing. A lot of people consider that the first rock and roll song, right? Yeah. So, of course, I couldn't believe when Dylan's manager said, yeah, that's a big boy tune. But then it was more spinal tappy when I went and listened to this quote unquote master, Rock Me Baby. Rock me, baby. Can I hear that drum beat? Rock me so slow. Wait, where's the wagon wheel? Where's the southbound train? Where's mama? It's baby? Anyway, so Bob said that it was a Crudup tune. But then it got better because Crudup said he didn't write it. He said he learned it from Big Bill Brunzi out of Chicago who recorded it in the 1920s. So if you believe that story, then from Big Bill to Big Big Boy Boy. to Bob to Old Crow and then to Darius, it takes five recordings, five versions, and a hundred years for the song to become the Rocky Top that it is today. And in its near century-long gestation sees the shared authorship of three african-american musical icons the greatest jewish songwriter of ukrainian descent ever (laughs) and a skinny white kid from new hampshire (laughs) that's fantastic Thank you so much. We want to let our fans know where they can get a hold of your music, find out what you're doing on social or whatever. Where can they reach you and get information on you? WWW. Corey, I'm just going to give him Corey's home number. He's got a landline right there above the icebox. Uh, you know, just look us up online, y'all, or whatever. But come out and see us. Our new album's called Paint This Town. It's on ATO Records. Really would appreciate if everybody listening right now who's enjoyed this broadcast will stream or buy or however it works uh, so that we can actually sell you this thing that is our new album. And thanks so much for telling our story. It's so cool that Old Crow's big break came from busking. And busking, of course, if you don't know, is playing music in public with your guitar case open and collecting tips. Have you ever busked, Alan? I haven't. I never did it. I don't think I had the balls to busk. Did you ever do it? Well, you know what? I wanted to with my twin daughters when they were about five and super cute. I know that we would just get like tons of change. My wife said no. Well, I'll ask you another question. Have you ever seen a busker that was unforgettable? 
Uh, yeah. When I was at University of Wisconsin-Madison, there was a guy named Art Paul Slosser who was always busking on State Street by the university. He had a classic song called My Cat Was Taking a Bath. I'll never forget it. <laughs> I don't remember him, but when I was in Madison, I think we had a little higher level of busker. We actually had famous jazzer before he became famous, Stanley Jordan who's played with Dizzy Gillespie huh. and Quincy Jones. He used to be on the mall in Madison, and he would play two guitars, one with his patented hammer motion on the fretboard, and he also did he did what Nigel Tufnell did. He played one with his foot. Wow. Well, I mean, you graduated two generations before me, so I, I, I missed that well, entirely. Well, yeah, people had a bus because they didn't bad. have amplification back then. <laughs> Buskers are like entrepreneurs, right? They create their own opportunities. They're not waiting around to get booked into Madison Square Garden. The sidewalk and the subways are staged, and they're making things happen for themselves. A big thank you to Ketch and Corey for proving that sometimes it takes a century of cumulative greatness and unintentional collaboration to create a masterpiece. That's news you can use, listeners. Thanks also to Joe Civic at the Missing Peace Group for helping to bring Old Crow Medicine Show to the TMEP Show. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. This episode was edited by Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you list the podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP Show, and join our mailing list on our website at tmepshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Final Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Final Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller. On behalf of my co-host Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. We're going to send you off with a song that's about as south of the Mason-Dixon line as I get from my solo album, Wuthering Depths, called Crackers. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. Hello, crew world. Here's one of your own adult prizes.